Hello and welcome to QAV 2023. This is episode 601, season six, uh, episode 01. I know we've only been doing this for, I think this is our fourth year. Why is it season six? It's a long story. Uh, blame COVID. Anyway, I'm here by myself again this week. Tony is taking another week off to spend some time with his family and uh, gives me another opportunity to do a little bit of uh, creative best of episode. I hope Tony comes back next week, though, because I'm running out of ideas for best of episodes. What I am going to do this week, though, is uh, interviews, best of some of our earliest interviews uh, going back to 2019 uh, and 2020. I went through the archives, dug up some of my favorite interviews from back in that time with guests that we've had on and just grabbed some clips that I thought were particularly interesting. And the first one is uh, my old friend Steve Samatino actually was the first guest we ever had on QAV, episode uh, five of the podcast. And and um, Steve is a guy I've known since the uh, mid 2000s, uh, 2004, 2005, I think. He and I became friends not long after I started podcasting, started uh, the podcast network. He had a startup as well. We both lived in the same suburb in Melbourne and we used to catch up for coffee quite often. Great guy, Steve, one of the greatest uh, uh, thinkers that I know. Uh, he basically works as a futurist and a speaker now. Uh, he's produced a TV show that he also starred in for a few years where he was talking about futurism stuff. He's written a few books. And I remember when I first met Steve, he told me that he was basically semi-retired at the time. He was only in his, I think, mid-30s. He had had a sort of corporate job in marketing and um, I tried to figure out, well, you know, how, how did you manage to retire in your mid-30s? Turns out he was an investor. Now, unlike uh, Tony, Steve had just been investing in Vanguard, basically, uh, funds that he started when he was quite young, decided to put all of the money that he could into funds and just let the funds do the work for him. Did a lot of research, uh, studied, uh, read Intelligent Investor and Buffett and Peter Lynch and those sorts of books, realized that investing was the way to go. And so he, he just did that very diligently diligently between the ages of I think 20 and 35 something like that and uh, then he had he was making more income at that stage from the the dividends from his portfolio than he was from his corporate job and so he quit and went and did what he wanted to do which he's been doing ever since the last 15 years or so which is basically just uh, as I said being a, a speaker and a futurist and an author and all that kind of stuff so anyway oh um, I did a few podcasts with Stephen at the time about his approach to investing and uh, I, I thought it was a natural thing to get him on early on in the show. Yeah, there's two ways to earn money. There's money you can earn when you're in the room and then there's money you can earn by making money work. Seems like a good a good opportunity for you to plug your recent book. <laughs> it's called The Lesson School Forgot and it's really broken down into three sections. It's broken down into the revolution that gives us new information and knowledge where we can teach ourselves anything, you know, all the change that we're all hearing about. The second bit is about revenue. What's your personal revenue model, you know, and how, how to invest in, across the different types of investment. And then the third part is how to reinvent yourself and get a new career where you can um, go to where there's a, there's abundance as opposed to kind of staying in your old sort of uh, career where it might be drying up or there's not as much money as there was there. So it's about those three things. And they're basically things that they just don't teach you in school because schools, a system 
And the system at school is to teach you how to get a job. And that's because school was designed during the peak of the industrial revolution and they needed workers to work in factories. And so school is a factory and you're the product that comes out of it. And then you go work in one. And this is the stuff that they didn't teach you um, that might be a pretty good value that I've sort of worked out just myself. Oh, it's, a, it's a good book too. I read it last year. Uh, the, the title reminds me of uh, that famous book, um, What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> by uh, the guy who set up IMG, International Management Group. That's a good read for anyone in corporate life with, who wants to know how it really works. So getting back to you, you as a young lad, Steve, you just became interested and you just seem to have discipline to follow a plan. The confidence to come up with a plan in the first place and then the discipline to follow it through for the next 15 years. Where did that come from? Just coded into your brain or did it uh, somebody sit you down and, and – uh, give you a plan at some stage no one no one gave me a plan or anything i was just i just didn't want to be poor and didn't want to struggle and 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 didn't want to rely on anyone else i've got this real i just hate people telling me what to do and so that i thought that it's probably not going to work out well for me if my income and my career my future is based on me working for other people so i just wanted to have fiercely independent and and that's kind of why i reckon the last five or six years have been the best in my career because i haven't really been working for anyone and even when i did rentoid it's that that independence is something that i like and so i just wanted to be independent and i just wanted to and i hated my corporate job i worked in corporate for 13 years and i hated it i hated it so much it made me more inspired to invest and i was really i was really lean on on what yeah i live below most people would have lived on on the income I was on. I was on a good corporate income, but I was pretty conservative. I mean, I didn't go without, I don't think, but, you know, I wouldn't waste money on things or whatever. I, I got really, I almost turned into a game, you know, like where you, I guess people these days, they want to accumulate likes. Well, I just wanted to accumulate, you know, shares in my portfolio. I just wanted to, <laughs> you know, I just accumulated a different thing. Really, That's a really good point, isn't it? So you, you drive the cheapest car you can stand. You live in the smallest yeah. house you can stand. Exactly that. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. like, why don't you come live in the eastern suburbs, you know, so, oh, you come there, it's better out there. And I lived in, you know, I lived in Yarraville and I lived at home longer than most people did. And yeah, I did exactly those things. It, don't go without, just don't get ahead of yourself. Mm. And, you know, I'd be driving home and go, geez, I'm hungry. I could go, I could go some KFC here, you know, 21-year-old boy, just hungry all the time. I go, no, I'll go home and have a sandwich, mate. That's that's another that's another 10 units in Vanguard. And and certainly don't borrow to buy a car or something else like that. No, I never did that. I've, I've got a rule with debt, and it's a really, really simple rule. I only ever go into debt for anything that will go up in value. That's right. the rule. The end. That rule has never been broken in my entire life. No, I think it's amazing wow. that you learnt all these rules almost intuitively and you weren't taught them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. My dad was really good with that stuff. He was a farmer and he used to like have all these farm analogies where, you know, he'd be just just all these good farm analogies. And um, and I just took those and then applied them into different places. It was, so my dad taught me a lot about this stuff. He, he really had an intuitive understanding of investment and work and you know he had the formula for happiness he said the formula for happiness he said you want to know Steve I said yeah tell me he said you've got to spend less than you earn he said if you stick to that formula I said I promise you you'll be happy <laughs> that was his formula for happiness <laughs> sounds like uh poor Richard's almanac one of the books that it's Charlie Munger always refers to yeah my, my dad used to always have those kind of things 
You know, he said, and he used to always say, now, a lot of people, they get a chook, you know what they do? He says, they have a couple of eggs. He said, and then one day they go, oh, it's Christmas, let's eat the chook. He said, no, no, you never eat the chook, just live on the eggs. And then he said, but also what you've got to do, Steve, is every now and again, you've got to bring in a rooster and you've got to hatch a few of those eggs as well and let them hatch since you don't even eat all the eggs. Right. And so, and so there's like, that's really similar to the way money works. So you mm. that's your chook, you're the chook, you lay eggs and you just live on what, what you earn there, don't go and eat the don't eat the thing that creates the revenue. And then with the revenue, it's the same with like lemon trees. He'd say, you don't eat all the lemons. You've got to plant some. And he said, not all the seeds will grow, but you've got to plant more than enough. And then it's abundance and it just has a multiplier effect. He used to give me all these farming analogies. And I actually reckon that business and industry and farming are really, they're, they're the same thing, right? And if you look at business and investing, right? Well, all the words are farming words, growth, yield, you know, it's all, it's all the same stuff. If you want to listen to the full interview with Steve, go back to episode season one, episode 05, uh, 29th of March, 2019, we published that. And it's called the Samatino Method. And that's also what I called some of the uh, early podcasts that I did with him back in 2004, five, something like that. So if you Google the Samatino Method, uh, you can find longer and more discussions with Steve from back in those days. The next interview that uh, I've got lined up is with Australian investing legend, I think I can call him that, Roger Montgomery. Roger is somebody that uh, had an influence on Tony in the early days. Roger wrote a book at some point called Valueable, uh, talking about his approach to investing. He started the company that then became Share Analysis uh, when somebody else took it over that we used to use as an alternative to Stock Doctor for some valuations. Unfortunately, they went out of business a year or so into doing the podcast. But we uh, had Roger on. It was uh, episode 23, uh, came out on the 8th of August, 2019. It's called Beware the Black Swan. It's about six months, seven, eight months before COVID hit. And Roger was saying, you know, uh, all these growth stocks are uh, booming at the moment. But, you know, what will happen is a black swan will come along and interest rates will go up. And a black swan, for people who haven't heard the term before, means something something that you don't expect to see. No one predicts it. It just comes out of the blue, which she was exactly right with COVID. And uh, anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting chat. And so uh, let me throw to the Roger Montgomery interview. And the point is that, that bubbles tend to pop um, not when the status quo is, oh, sorry, they tend to pop when the status quo is being maintained, but a black swan event changes everyone's perspective. Uh, and and that is the, you know, in this case, it could be uh, China devaluing their currency. And all that needs to happen now is that fear needs to start, I guess, increasing around the possibility that, uh, you know, that China's going to dig in, uh, that we're going to have a real trade war that could lead to a global recession. I'm making all this up, of course. Uh, but that's all that's needed, just a, a shift in sentiment and you get a disruption to that idea that lower rates for longer are supportive for stocks. So we've seen in Australia, for example, um, we've seen interest rates low and declining for some time. Uh, and yet, house prices, which is just another asset class, uh, you know, we're just talking about stocks or they're just stocks or they're just uh, houses, they have fallen substantially in Australia and elsewhere in the world. And that's with interest rates declining. So the argument that lower rates for longer are going to support stocks, but they're not going to support property, you know, I think that's a flawed argument. Yeah, I think I think there's a real risk in low interest rates as well as when we do have the black swan event, the reserve banks have no 
no firepower left to uh, support the economy. Well, yeah, and that's a second order effect, and you know, that's something else that the, the the market might fear. Hey, we're heading into recession. Everyone, you know, it can be self fulfilling where where people are just concerned. Asset prices have fallen. Now the stock market's fallen. Hey, it all looks pretty bad. Why are rates going down? They're going down because the economy's not looking good. Um, and I do think domestically in our Australian economy, there are some real risks between now and Christmas for our economy. Um, and I'm happy to articulate those. Uh, but you know. The, you just get sentiment latching on to that and then suddenly uh, you get another leg lower in the stock market as well. Remember, the market casts its shadow before it, so it, it's going to react to things before they've transpired. It's a mistake to wait until they've transpired. Anyway, that not a, not a problem for us at the market falling, of course, because we've got in one of our funds, in our global fund, we've been fortunate that we've found lots of value and lots of high quality. So we've got about 10% cash or thereabouts. In our domestic funds, one of our funds has 22% cash and the other one 33% cash. So we're delighted with falling asset prices. Yeah, that's good. So maybe just let me break some of that down. Um, when you talk about quality and value, do you use some kind of checklist or some kind of formula to quantify that? Or is it is it uh, based on comparative valuations? So the valuation is based on uh, a variety of formula that we use um, to assess value. When we, we use a, a what's called an excess return model, and the, the most basic version of that is in in the a book that I referred to earlier, Valuable. Um, we also use a discounted cash flow uh, modelling, and that's for valuation. Um, and we use another uh, program that we've developed in house called Salt. Uh, which stands for security analysis for the long term. And and then that's the value side. And then on the quality side, we define quality quite strictly. And that is the ability of a company to retain large amounts of capital uh, from, from its profits, so large amounts of retained earnings, um, and reinvest those at a high rate of return um, either today or we expect to do that, that, we expect them to do that in the future. There's a third element to the uh, to the philosophy, I guess, and that is uh, we're looking for bright prospects. We're looking for a business that is going to be able to achieve something in the future that it hasn't achieved yet. For example, it's going to be a lot bigger. Um, it's going to um, commercialise a new product. Uh, it's going to penetrate new markets, those sorts of things. Let me just ask a follow-up question on the bright prospects comment you made. Uh, we've been talking to other investors, uh, particularly people who have uh, been buying the uh, the the wangs, the waxes, and the fangs, and those kinds of things on the basis of their future prospects. It's not a, an argument I'm necessarily subscribing to, but maybe you could give us an example of a company you think is quality, uh, offering a price at value, but still has bright prospects. Uh, so there's a company in Australia. Well, there's two actually. I'll give you a global one, and I'll give you a domestic one. So globally. Uh, there's a company called Vivendi. Um, Vivendi, one of its businesses uh, is it's a 100% owner of a company called the Universal Music Group. The Universal Music Group has the largest market share in terms of song libraries. So it has the rights to the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Dire Straits, and for those interested, Britney Spears. Um, uh, you know, it really is the bee's knees in terms of its its record library. Now, you would have thought that when um, the consumption of music moved from physical format, so from CDs 
to streaming, that would be bad for song libraries because you might remember we used to pay up to $34 for a CD and now you're paying literally a fraction of a cent uh, for a song. You can listen to thousands of songs in a month and you pay $11 or $12 a month through Spotify, for example, or Apple iTunes. And so, um, so you would have thought that uh, that would be bad for the record labels that own the song libraries. But in actual fact, the amount of money spent globally on streamed music is vastly higher than the greatest amount ever spent on physical music. And so even, even in five years' time, the amount of money spent on streaming or three years' time, the amount of money spent on streaming will will be multiples of what was spent on physical music. So in the first instance... Vivendi benefits by owning Universal Music because more money is spent playing songs. And, you know, there's a movie that's out at the moment called, I think it's called Yesterday, um, and it's sort of reliving the, the, the Beatles. And guess what? Everyone's downloading Beatles soundtracks or streaming Beatles music uh, at the moment. So who benefits from that? Universal Music Group. They did the same thing with uh, Queen, with that, that Queen um, movie that was that was in cinemas earlier this year. And so that benefits uh, uh, Universal Music Group more than it would have if they um, were delivering that music on CDs. And, and why is that? Well, part of the reason is because it's easier to access the music, so more money is being spent. Um, on that music. But the other reason that it benefits um, Vivendi and Universal Music Group is because the margin is so much higher than it used to be. When when a band wrote a song or, or wrote an album, released an album, Universal Music Group would have to buy a blank CD, they would have to laser cut it, they would have to employ a photographer and or an artist to create the artwork around that CD uh, and a book that would go in it. They would then put it in a plastic sleeve. Um, it would then be put on a pallet and it then had to be shipped all around the world. None of that exists today. There's still a little bit of artwork that's supplied, but the song is uploaded, the, the album is uploaded to the cloud. Uh, Spotify do all of the marketing virtually and, and Apple does virtually all of the marketing. And consequently, um, the margin for Universal Music Group goes from about 10% to 60%. So we think that's a business with very bright prospects. It's very high quality because it's going to generate a much higher margin than it's generated in the past. And it's good value because we think if it can generate the sort of margins, um, in fact, the, the, the price in the market is implying a lower margin than it's already generating. Uh, and it hasn't even penetrated every country. Spotify isn't in every country in the world yet. Um, only a small proportion of people actually have a Spotify account. So there's there's more penetration within the geographies where they're already present and there's more geographies um, uh, to conquer as well. So so that runway for growth and prospects is very, very long. So that's a, that's a, a global version and a domestic version. I'll keep it um, briefer. Domestic version is a company called Avita. Uh, Avita has uh, got a brilliant, brilliant product, which is already being used in, uh, in it's a medical, uh, uh, I guess, a medical um, product um, uh, that replaces, or it is hoped will replace as the standard of care for burns victims, um, it will replace uh, skin grafts. And what they do is they take a bunch of your skin cells, they mix it with a, a solution, 
and literally spray it onto the wound. Um, the healing time is quicker. Your stay in hospital is shorter. The cost of delivering the service for the hospital is much cheaper. Um, and so it's believed that this will be the standard of care. And all of the doctors and surgeons that we've spoken to who have used the product have said, absolutely, this will become the standard of care for all the reasons I've articulated. Uh, and we think it's got great prospects and it's underpriced compared to its potential. Well, thanks for that, Roger. That's one I'll have to look at. I'm not familiar with either of those. Well, uh, here we are, January uh, 2023. I, I went and had a look at these two stocks that Roger was talking about. Vivendi has done quite well since we recorded this interview back in August 2019. It's about doubled in share price. Not particularly stunning. You know, I guess that's what 2020, 2021, 2023 and a half years. Uh, but it's good. You know, it's not bad. You double your money every three and a half years. That's uh, pretty good. Uh, Avida, yeah, not so good. Uh, August 2019, it was trading around $9.30. It's currently trading at about $1.94. did go up for a while. Went up uh, February 2020, just before the COVID crash. It was up around 16.30. So, you know, if he managed to get out, uh, then he probably did okay, 50% of his money. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're still holding Avida today, you're not going to be a very happy investor. The next clip I want to play is from another old friend of mine, Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas is uh, uh, an economist, an Australian economist. We had him on season three, episode 15. This came out on the 15th of May, 2020, a couple of months into COVID. There was a lot of money printing going on, and I thought it would be a good idea to have an economist to come on and talk a little bit about the printing of money, um, uh, easing, uh, monetary uh, easing quantitative easing, sorry, that's what they call it, and MMT. And uh, here's what Nicholas had to say about some of those topics. Uh, well, I've got a bit of a horse in this race, um, uh, which is something I wrote about, um, uh, well, I, I think I'm on the record back in 2014, but I've been working it up for a while, and it's called Central Banking for All. And um, that's where I, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't spend a lot of my time as a macro economist, but that's where I tried to get on top of the, uh, I won't say the intricacies of the banking system, but the confusing, uh, the, the banking system is in, at, at heart, a very simple thing, but you need to be thinking of assets and liabilities at the same time. And it's all, and you find it awful. And, and so that's one reason why money is such a place for cranks. Uh, and it's also a great place if you want to make some money as a part of a system which is quietly stealing from other people. So money has been very controversial for a long time, uh, in America particularly, and it's bred its own uh, it's bred all kinds of cranks. I'm not saying MMTs are cranks, but uh, there are there are lots of theories of money around. And um, I'm a bit of I, I have a bit of a rule here, which is although I try to detect cranks and ignore them, I also have a very healthy regard for my own ignorance, and that comes with a bit of a sting in the tail because I have a just as healthy regard for everybody else's ignorance. And I think uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people going around with a fair, who are overly confident of their own framework. And I look around for $1,000 bills on the pavement, things where most 
ways of looking at the world would tell you this is a this is a big opportunity. This can this is a way of doing things better, uh, and where those things sort of lead you to the the minimum number of doubts. And so when you were talking to me about talking about MMT, um, firstly I told you I certainly didn't want to pose as an expert about that or anything else, uh, but rather as someone who tries to figure these things out on their merits. And secondly. I mentioned to you that it seemed to me that there are um, there are sort of if you want to think about alternatives to the system we've got, I'd like to suggest there are four. Uh, mine is one, um, and maybe we can come to that after we talked about the others. Modern monetary theory is another. Uh, there was a thing called the Chicago Plan, which arrived, which was cooked up in response to the Great Depression from in the University of Chicago. Uh, I think it was articulated fully in 1939. What's intriguing about this is that it's a very dramatic expansion of the role of government, which was proposed by the University of Chicago and enthusiastically endorsed by Milton Friedman after the war. Uh, so that's a pretty interesting thing to talk about. Um, there is a modern, what I would call a modern version of that, which is sovereign money, uh, the idea of sovereign money. Uh, so we, and then there's MMT, and then there's my uh, approach, which I will do my best to present to you as the logical consequence of all that thinking, and the one that's most likely to generate good things, and the least likely to generate. Uh, unexpected side effects. Wow. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait. Tony, do you want to? <laughs> okay. Tony, do you want to start with something in particular? Is it possible just to get a succinct summary of what MMT is? I mean, my 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 take on it is that we're we're getting close to it now with the way that there are central banks are uh, flooding the economy with money, um, but it must be kind of one step further than that. Uh, well, it's an entire theory, uh, which uh, I like to think of. I'd like to think of it in the um, uh, follow by following up a comment of Keynes. So Keynes described the gold standard as a barbarous relic, and what he was saying there was that we can do better. That money is a human creation, a social creation, a social, a, a sort of social agreement on a common hallucination, if you like, that we will treat a particular thing as a unit of value. And he was saying, well, if you've got this technology, this social technology, there are all kinds of costs in anchoring it to a physical reality, and that ultimately. Anchoring this thing to a physical reality um, is, is also unworthy of humans. In other words, humans are trying to constrain themselves by pretending that money is something that it isn't, that money is gold, uh, rather than a social technology, a common social hallucination that we set up so that we're all playing the same game. So Keynes had got as far as to say we we should regard gold as a sort of a, 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 a superstition, if you like, the idea that a monetary system has to be built on, an, on a 
a, a physical token of value. I think of MMT as it's, it, uh, Keynes spoke about a, a, a school of thinking called chartalism, which was founded by a guy called Knapp at the, towards the end of the uh, 19th century, a German um, economist. And he tried to develop uh, thinking about the economy uh, or thinking about monetary policy around this fact that money is a entirely for is a is a invisible liquid if you like a, 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 something like the oil in a in an engine but it costs us nothing to produce it but we have to produce it in limited quantities otherwise it loses its value and so MMT is an attempt in my way of telling the story is an attempt to rebuild our understanding of monetary policy around this fact that fiat money, the money that we see in our pockets, which is just a piece of plastic, and we say this is worth $20 or $100, um, that this is something which we agree to treat as having value, but costs us nothing to produce. Uh, and I would say I, my, what my reading of MMT is that in some kinds of senses, Keynes didn't go far enough in his rethinking of how money works when money is fiat money. Does that, and, and so what you're saying, Tony, about MMT being essentially money financing, in other words, the central bank just printing money, that's, I mean, MMT doesn't say you should do that or shouldn't do that. And no framework, except for ideological frameworks, say that you should or shouldn't do that, but they give you a framework within which you think about the circumstances in which you should do that and the circumstances in which you shouldn't do that. And MMT is much more relaxed about money financing than, than more Keynesian positions and other uh, more conservative positions again. And of course, we also have gold bugs in our world. And of course, as we all know, the money was flowing freely for a while there, but then uh, the music stopped and interest rates started going up and they kept going up and they kept going up and the market's been uh, pretty choppy over the last six or seven months as uh, as a, partly as a result of that and, and, you know, Ukraine and China, COVID and supply chain and all the rest of it, as you know. So who's next? Oh, our old friend Tobias Carla. We had Tobias on not that long ago, I think, a few months ago we had him on again, but we first had him on episode 328. Uh, this was... This came out on the 8th of July, 2020. Again, we were sort of in the middle, well, the early stages of COVID, I guess. For those of you who don't know Tobias, he's uh, originally an Aussie, but he lives in the US, has done for many years, runs a couple of investment funds over there, has also written a really good investing book called The Acquirer's Multiple. And we got him in or on the show just to chat about his approach to investing. Tony asked him a whole bunch of questions about uh, The Acquirer 
buyer's multiple and how to buyers values companies and how he does things a little bit differently to Tony, partly because he's in the US market and partly because he runs uh, some funds over there. But really great chat. He uh, was, I think last time we had him on, I said he was recently voted the most uh, good looking guy in uh, value investing industry. I think I, I made up that award, but he is a very good looking dude. <laughs> he has a great podcast. That's a lot of fun worth listening to if you ever want to check that out. Here's a little bit from Tobias. I think one of the things that is challenging for a lot of people when they're introduced to value investing for the first time is the contrarian nature of it. Uh, and, and how do you keep your head? And I know one of the things I liked about reading the Aquarius multiple is you had a lot of great quotes from a lot of people about being a contrarian. Uh, how do you do that? How do you keep your head when uh, the fan mags are going through the roof and just stick to your, stick to your strategy? I just complain to everybody and I, and I, <laughs> I just whinge to my wife, whinge to all of my value investor friends, whinge on my podcast, whinge on my Twitter account. I, I, I haven't really come up with a really good way of doing it. I always say to my wife, I've got this, I've got this thing where I say to her, I, I, this is what I think is going to happen. Value is going to get you know, beaten up for quite a while here. And I'm going to come and say to you that, you know, this is all too hard. I'm going to throw it in. I'm going to go and buy some of these growthier names. And at that time, I want you to remind me about this conversation. And I just, I don't want to say that to her because I know that once I say that to her, she will repeat that back to me. And she said to me a few times, do you want me to tell you now? And I'm like, no, 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 just wait a little bit longer. Don't, don't say it yet. You know, it's hard. The way that I do it, I, in being serious, I, I look back, I, you know, I'm pretty data-driven, pretty data-driven, data-driven. I look back at all of these other periods of time where value has underperformed, you know, they always coincide with pretty famous bull market peaks, 1999 being the last really famous one, infamous one. Mm. And I look at a lot of the research that other shops like AQR, uh, OSAM, all these sort of more quantitative value shops over here. And I can look at, you know, Berkshire is struggling at the moment too. Anybody who's got a value bent, a more traditional value bent is struggling a little bit in the States particularly. I look at their research and I, you know, I'm trying to find out is there, is this, is, is this kind of value investing dead? Is there a problem with it? Let's look at all the things that, is it a function of interest rates? Cause interest rates are low. Is that what's sort of driving it? Can we kill that idea? Are these portfolios unusually junky as a, are they, they're not earning as much on assets as they used to, or they carry more debt than they used to. And so I just go through this list of things and keep on testing these ideas. Anytime I hear an idea, oh, it's not working because X, and I try and test X and try and see if that's really the case. So far, I haven't really been able to diagnose why it's not working. And so I think that it's just sometimes that's what happens in the market, that good strategies underperform for periods of time. Every strategy has its has its time when it's working and its time when it's not working. And at the moment, its values tend to not work. So, so when, you go this, when you go and see your wife and tell her you're giving up, she, she's going to go out and short the, the, the fan gap stocks because <laughs> that's capitulation, isn't it, really? She'll say, thank God, I can't hear it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when you say value is not working, I mean, I'm still getting good returns um, as a, a you know, mix of quality and value, I guess, but mainly value. You, you must still be getting acceptable returns, I would think, wouldn't you? Well, it has been. That, that's right. It has been a pre, on a relative basis, value was underperforming, but on an absolute basis, value has been doing reasonably well. And that's been one of the mm. more uh, 
one of the more difficult things over the last decade of on a relative basis, value has turned in a pretty good showing. It's sorry, on an absolute basis, value's turned in a pretty good showing. It's just on a relative basis, it's lagged. Um, but that's unusual. Most of the time, value does outperform pretty materially. And the, the question is usually, why is it outperforming? Is it because you're taking on more risk or is there some behavioral reason why these things get too cheap? People just overreact to bad news. This time around, it's sort of, it's difficult to diagnose the reason why it's underperforming. Um, it's not a nice time to be a value guy. But having said that, I look at the landscape right now for the positions in the portfolio and what that has implied in the past. And I do think that the forward returns for value are very good here. Even if we go into something like, so if you look at Japan, pretty famously went into um, massive stock market crash in 1990. It's never recovered from that stock market crash. But if you're a value guy in Japan from 1990 to date, using just very simple price to earnings, price to cash flow, price to book type metrics, you've done very, very well. You've massively outperformed and generated very good returns over that period, even though the market is down. So I sort of think if that happens in the States, um, value is going to be okay here. And value within sectors and industries has done quite well. It's just that value has tended, when it's unconstrained across the whole market, has tended to avoid tech, which has been very good this summer, and, and has tended to be more concentrated in financials and energy, which have, which have stumbled um, pretty significantly through this period. But that's why I like value because it, you know, over the long term, it gives you a great return, you know, double market in, in my case anyway. But, uh, you know, there'll be fads when tech stocks will have their day in the sun and people will jump on that bandwagon because it's getting 30% returns, triple market, something like that. Uh, but that won't last because, because no tree grows to the sky. That's, that's just the basic way of, you know, economies. If, yeah, if, you're, if, a man after, if, you're a man after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Like that's, that's exactly what I think. They just have to, there are periods of time where it, it all looks a little bit too easy and you wonder why you do all this extra work as a value go when mm. you can just go and buy these other names. But then there's a reckoning and then you're reminded yes. um, why it is that you do a little bit more work. Exactly. Yes, that's what I think too. All right. And the last clip is the first time we had on Michael Goldberg from Collins Street Value Fund. I think we've had him on yet again. We had him on more recently. For those who don't know, Collins Street Value Fund, obviously based out of Collins Street in Melbourne. Very, very good returns for these guys. Um, I think they sort of do 15 to 20% per annum compound over the history since inception of their fund. They're value investors. Very nice guy and uh, always like having Michael on for a chat. This was the first time we chatted to him, so we went into a bit of his own personal background and the background of their fund, etc. But in this clip, Tony talks to him about how or asks him about how they uncover value investing opportunities. What kind of process do you go through to uncover a stock like iSelect or cash converters? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's a different story for, for every sort of stock, obviously, because different sorts of stocks are being valued on different sorts of bases. I mean, with, with iSelect specifically, I recall before they were penny dreadful, they were two, three bucks a share and had fallen down. I think this is back in 2018, 2019 as well. They'd fallen to about a dollar. And, and Vass and I were thinking, you know what, this is, this is fundamentally a company that we think we understand. You know, they, they make a cut, they get a commission on, on selling insurance and, you know, power plans and phone plans and whatnot. And it seems like the sort of business that would do pretty well in the modern world. And so we went to meet, or Vass actually went to meet with the CEO and they had this long conversation 
about, you know, why the stock fallen from two bucks to one dollar. You know, do we have anything to be concerned about? It seems on the face of things that everything should be okay, but obviously the share price has dropped and, you know, we've read a couple of broker notes suggesting that you, you guys are come a big downgrade. And the CEO, at the, t- the CEO at the time said, no, no, everything's fine. Those broker notes are just their opinion and I maintain that we are on track for, for guidance. I think that was a Wednesday. It's important that I mention that was a Wednesday. <laughs> so so Vass came back to the office and, and we had a chat about it and I think it was Thursday when we were having the conversation and I said, look, we wouldn't be doing our job without first confirming why the broker, uh, it was one broker specifically, has such a, a negative view on it. So let's send him an email. Let's see if he'll have a chat with us on Monday and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll weigh what he says against what management has said. And, and there's been plenty of times where management have come out with a story that makes sense and the market comes out with a story that makes sense and they're both at odds with each other. And, you know, our job is to try and work out which one is nonsense and which one is, is accurate. So we sent the email on the Thursday and, um, you know, we worried about it. You see, you know, said we'll worry about this come Monday. So Monday morning comes along and I get a frantic phone call from Bass who was, who was on the way to, to another meeting. And he goes, Michael, it's 33 cents. I said, Bass, what's 33 cents? So he says, I select just dropped from a dollar five to 33 cents. And the CEO is retired, uh, big downgrade. They overspent on advertising. They didn't quite get the sales they expected. What should we do? And I said, well, let me ask you a couple of basic questions. I said, number one, do we understand why the downgrade happened? Yeah. Number two, does, the, does management and the new team understand why the downgrade happened and are they going to fix it? Yeah, great. Is their NTA still about 50 cents? Yeah, great. I said, mate, I'm going to hang up on you and don't be shy. If you can buy something, if you can buy something worth 50 cents on their NTA for 33 cents, then get cracking. So our average buy-in price originally um, was about 50 cents. Um, at the time, that was great. It, it promptly ran up to about uh, 80 cents and then 90 cents. I think I might've even gotten to a dollar when compared the market came onto the registry and we trimmed um, because, you know, we were cognizant of our weightings and, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd made a good return. We didn't sell it all, unfortunately, because it started to drift backwards as it became clear that compared the market, we weren't going to do a quick takeover. Um, the industry also faced a lot of headwinds in terms of regulatory change to how, how they dealt with healthcare and how they dealt with energy and all that sort of stuff. So the business is not perhaps worth what it was, but the share price fell to 20 cents. Um, so at 20 cents, you're buying a business on its fire sale value. Even if you have to pay to sack all of the stuff and wind it up, you're still talking about 35, 40 cents after you pay for redundancies. So we figured if you can buy an asset worth 40 cents with potential upside from the business, then that's a pretty easy decision to make. So again, it, it hasn't necessarily gone our way, um, over the last six, 12 months. Um, based on our previous purchase price, but we averaged down when it got low and, you know, hopefully we'll see it much, much higher in the not too distant future. But again, you know, margin of error, margin of safety. If, 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 if you can be sure that this business is worth 40 cents um, in a wind up scenario, then you can be pretty comfortable paying 20 cents. Now, again, Tony, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that that doesn't mean the next day the share price is going to go up and it often doesn't go up. Yeah. Right. And t- yeah, timing sure. is something that, that, plays a part and is a factor. Um, but we try not to get too hung up on, on, on the matter of timing, not because it's not important, but because I think it's much harder to measure, you know, we can get pretty comfortable on what a business Mm -hmm. is worth. Um, but I can't get that same degree of comfort around how people are going to feel 
the next morning and whether or not the share price is going to go up no, or down. Yeah, we're all playing a regression to the mean game. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I'm still kind of unsure of what your process is. Why Why did you pick out iSelect out of the 2,000 shares on the ASX? So fair enough. we have a watch list. We have a watch list which, which currently makes up about 400 stocks. Um, and each reporting season or anytime there's material information, we update our numbers um, as to what we think those stocks might be worth. And there's a bit of, automa- there's a bit of automation and there's a bit of manual inputs. Um, reporting season is quite a busy time in the office because of all the manual inputs. But essentially, any time a stock falls below what we think their intrinsic value is, we get a flag. And that flag doesn't mean buy. That flag means time to get started on doing some of that due diligence. So for iSelect, um, specifically, given that that's one that you've mentioned, when it fell to a dollar, um, we've got a flag suggesting that on the basis of its previous earnings, that it looks interesting. So we called up management and had a chat and we did some more research in the business and all that sort of stuff and started to, to try and get comfortable with the business. Um, but but if, if you're asking what's the process to get started looking in a company, um, normally it is something off our watch list that will come up as a flag as having fallen below what we think its intrinsic value is. And normally, normally that's for one of a couple of reasons. Normally it's a business that is going through a, a turnaround. Turnarounds are tough, but, but often you can make good money out of turnarounds. Um, an alternative is that the stock has gone through a one-off issue. So often you'll see big, you know, big one-off hits that a company takes it that isn't going to materially impact them for the long term, but the market is very myopic and focused on what's going on now. So it can have a meaningful impact on the share price. And the other sort of business that tends to, to get flagged are companies that are flying under the radar um, for a number of different reasons. So yeah, no, normally the, no, normally the, the process is we get a flag from our watch list and then we start doing proper due diligence. There are, there are other ways, but that's normally how it comes about. Interesting. You, you, you said you spoke with management and then a couple of days later, the guy retired and there was a, a downgrade issued. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've been through the process of speaking with management and they're generally salespeople. So how, how much stock do you put on talking to management about their own book? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a tricky situation, isn't it? Um, I've, mm. I've walked into, into meetings before where a manager has essentially talked us out of buying a stock. Um, and then of course, a bit, which was to our benefit, because it turns out there was a downgrade coming up. He wasn't explicit, but <laughs> we read between the lines. And of course, there've been plenty of times where management are spruiking their business because that's, that's their job to, to be positive about the business, where it turned out to be not entirely true. So I was at a, um, a function not that long ago, and I think I might've told that exact story. And someone said, well, you know, if, if that's the case, how much can you trust management? And I lifted my fingers about a centimeter apart from each other. And I said, about that much. That's about how much mm-hmm. I can trust management. So look, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. You, 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 you've got to try and read people as best you can. Um, but what you really want to find is what a manager is saying being backed up with um, third party uh, confirmation. So uh, what do we learn from that? Don't trust anybody. Trust no one, as uh, Fox Mulder, my son's namesake, used to say. Um, Well, that's it uh, for the first episode of the year. I hope you enjoyed re-listening to some of those clips if you haven't heard them before, um, if you uh, weren't around back in 2019, 2020 when listening to our shows. I hope you enjoyed those for the first time. As I said earlier, you can go back and listen to those 
full interviews. Uh, the markets uh, had a reasonable couple of days. First day of the year wasn't so hot, but it's sort of picked up the last couple of days. So I hope your portfolios are looking a little bit rosier than they have of late. There's some good buying opportunities out there this week, but uh, we'll see how it goes this year. Fingers crossed this is a better year than it was last year, which as you all know, was very testing for investors. Uh, certainly for us, it certainly wasn't the, the, the uh, most uh, buoyant of years, but uh, as Tony always says, that's just business as usual. There are good years, there are bad years. We just keep cracking away, following our rules, and it uh, works out over time. That's why it's great to have a, a system to follow. All right, well, uh, I'll shut it down, and fingers crossed I'll be back next week with TK. And um, if you have any questions for Tony, make sure you send them through if you're a QAV Club member, of course. Shoot me an email with your questions, and um, I'll get Tony stuck into them next week. Take care, everyone. Quite have a good week. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFS cell 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.